please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, it isn't without recognition of the fact that we're about to read and have been even reading this morning words, God, that through these human authors you breathed forth. To know that when we're listening to these words read, that we're hearing God speak. And so I pray that even now, Holy Spirit, that you will come and be among us and within us in such a way that when these words which you have breathed forth come to our ears, that they don't stop there, but they go deep within us and that you would cause us to rejoice in them. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, please. Nehemiah chapter 1, please. I want to read the first uh, four verses. Nehemiah chapter 1. This is the word of God. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continue fasting and praying before the God of heaven." Now, what I want to do uh, today, if God will help me, is to take up um, this, just an introduction, if you will, to this uh, Old Testament book, Nehemiah. What I'd like to do is to, 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 to think about how we think about it, all right? How, how is it that we think about this Old Testament book, this book that was written more than 2,400 years ago, was written about some, uh, the memoirs, really, of a man, Nehemiah, who rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. In a miraculous short period of time in the midst of opposition. Now, now, the difficulty when we take up a book like Nehemiah, any historical narrative, but especially this one, is that Nehemiah was called to do something we aren't called to do. Nehemiah was called to build walls around a literal city. We're not called to do that. Uh, some of you may be uh, fence people, and maybe you are, but, but most of us aren't called to build walls around anything. In fact, we're, we're supposed to go through the walls and, and bring people, if you will, in. And so, so the question becomes, how do we really think through this book of Nehemiah and make sense of it uh, for us now? Typically, what we do with the book of Nehemiah is to consider it by taking note of how Nehemiah was a great leader, and he was. And so we find from the book of Nehemiah uh, leadership principles. Uh, he, he did this work. He organized a large group of people for a specific task, people that were afraid and even reluctant to do the work, but he still did it. He, he organized this group of people during this time in which uh, there was opposition, uh, and, and he, he problem-solved, 
and he delegated and all of that. And so we can see how Nehemiah was a leader. And that's a helpful thing. If you studied it in that way, uh, that was no doubt helpful. But I don't think that's why Nehemiah is in the Bible as it is. I don't think that's the primary purpose of it. You can find leadership principles all over the place uh, that are quite good and maybe even more exhaustive than we find in the book of Nehemiah. And so why really is it here? What are we really to take from it? How are we to read through it? And the first thing I think is this that helps us is that even though the book has the title Nehemiah, It really isn't about him. In fact, when we think of the Bible and ask the question, what's it about? We find that in the first instance, it really isn't about us even, but it's about God. J.I. Packer in a book with an intriguing title, it's an older book, called Hot Tub Religion. You should buy this book, it will help you. But, um, bless you, yes. Um, Let me read a bit. Packer writes this. He says, what do we find when, this is a long quote, by the way, and I know I'm not supposed to read long quotes, but you're good at this. So listen, you'll be okay. You know this. He says, what do we do when we find, when we read the Bible as a single unified whole with our minds alert to observe its real focus? We find just this. The Bible is not primarily about human beings at all. Its subject is God. He is the chief actor in the drama, the hero of the story. The Bible is a factual survey of God's work in this world, past, present, and future, with explanatory comments from prophets, psalmists, wise men, and apostles. Its main theme is not human salvation, but the work of God vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos. He does this by establishing his kingdom and exalting his son, by creating a people to worship and serve him, and ultimately by dismantling and reassembling this order of things, thereby rooting sin out of his world. It is into this larger perspective that the Bible fits God's work of saving people. It depicts God as more than a distant cosmic architect or an ubiquitous heavenly uncle or an impersonal life force. God is more than any of the petty substitute deities that inhabit our 20th century, 21st century minds. He is the living God, present and active everywhere, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. In other words... The Bible is about God. It's about what God is doing. Now we're blessed because what fits into God's plan to glorify himself is the salvation of a sinful people, including you and me. So it's in it, but it's not the ultimate theme of it. And so as we come to any passage of scripture, really, but even here in the Old Testament, we're asking the question as we read through the book of Nehemiah, What's God doing? Now, we, we get here, that is, we get to Nehemiah's place in all of this, really by, by, by considering, uh, we could use this expression, by the, from the arc of human, uh, the arc of redemptive history, the arc of redemptive history, that's a John Piper word for you, all you 
Piper writes. But, um, but, but the, the arc of redemptive history, how, how, how is it going? Where did it begin and how is the history of the redemption of God's people? And we, we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, of course, with Adam and Eve, where Adam is in covenant with God. And this covenant that God makes with Adam is how God will relate to Adam and Adam to God. And you remember that God identifies him in the garden as the creator. So Adam knows that God is the creator. And God says that he'll bless Adam with life, the tree of life, if he's faithful to God. And we know that Adam and Eve were not faithful to God. Rather than seeing God as God and the one to define good and evil, they took it upon themselves to define good and evil and ate of the tree. And thus, death would come because the wages of sin really is death, separation from God. And if you're just reading through the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 at that point, and you're wondering, so what's, what's the Bible about now? These people sinned, and he cast them out. And, and, and so what's going to happen? Well, he makes a promise, as we know, in, chapter 15, in verse 15 of chapter 3 in Genesis, that out of the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent, the serpent being the ones who enticed, who tempted Eve and Adam to follow him rather than follow God. And so we get a sense that the story isn't over. You get a sense that something more is coming. You get a sense that, that, that someone will come and, de- and destroy, really, this evil one. Well, that, then as we, we move on, we get to Genesis chapter 12, and God comes, comes upon this man named Abraham, we know him better, as Abraham. What's fascinating here is that we didn't expect this at all. I mean, who is this Abraham guy? I mean, he just sort of happens on the scene all of a sudden. And we wonder why God is coming to him and, and, and will make promises to him. But in chapter 12, verse 1, we get this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And I and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's amazing. And that the God of all there is comes to this man and says to him, I'll bless you. And I'll make you a blessing. And I'll curse everyone who curses you. And I'll bless everyone who blesses you. That is, I'll be for you. And then he makes this promise, profound promise. And he says, in you or out of your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we connect these dots. We go, all right, this one who's going to come to to, to, um, uh, crush the head of the serpent is going to bless all the families of the earth and he's going to come somehow from Abraham. But that's absurd because Abraham doesn't have any descendants. And and, and we get to know that that his wife is barren and, and she is beyond childbearing age, but yet, miraculously, she bears a child, Isaac. And this promise to Abraham, which will include many descendants, the Lord says, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, we we see that he has a descendant and and the family begins to grow. And he grows so much that after Isaac, of course, comes Jacob. And this great promise is made by God in Genesis 
in chapter 28 and verse 3. Read, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become a company of peoples. Now, that little expression, company of peoples, gives us the impression there'll be a lot of them, right? But what's fascinating about that word, companies of people, is that it means an assembly of people, a, a gathering of people. In fact, the Hebrew word there, kewal, is the Hebrew equivalent of a Greek word, ekklesia, which means church. So, what you have here is that God is saying that he's going to have for himself a company of people, an assembly of people, a gathering of people. Church. And this people will be his people and they will be his God. And we see this materialize, of course, because we realize that this company of people did, in fact, grow. And it ended up, this company of people, in Egypt. And it grew so much that the Egyptians were afraid of them and had them enslaved so that they wouldn't take them over, take over the Egyptians. And we realize at that point in time, they began to cry out to God. And God heard their cries. And he sent this man, Moses, whom he met at a bush that was burning but not being consumed. And he sent this man, Moses, to Egypt to deliver his people out of Egypt. And when he did, he took them out and he took them through the Red Sea, as we know, and he took them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And here he makes this great promise to this people, Exodus in chapter 19, in verse 3 and a half. Scholars call it 3B, but I like 3 and a half. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Uh, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so this gathering, this assembly of people... This company of peoples, people really from every nation ultimately, is church. He says, will be God's treasured possession. He owns everything, but they will be his favorite. They will be the ones he favors. They will be the ones he gives grace to. They will be his people, and he will be their God. In fact, he says to Moses, I'll dwell among you, but here's how we're going to do that. Because I'm holy and you're not. For me to dwell among you means that your sin must be atoned for. And so he says, I want you to build a tabernacle. In the midst of the tabernacle is a place called the Holy of Holies. And there you shall bring an atoning sacrifice, the blood of an atoning sacrifice. And it will atone for your sins, propitiate for your sins, satisfy for your sins. Because you see, he says, you really should die as a sinful people. For me to live amongst you then... A substitute I will take. And the substitute I will take will be an unblemished animal, an unblemished lamb generally. And he says, I want you to kill this unblemished lamb. It doesn't deserve to die. You do, but I'll take it in your place. And not only that, there'll be representatives. And these representatives will represent you before me. They'll be priests. And ultimately, we know as the, as the Israelites wandered around, they came to a permanent place to dwell. And God set up a city and 
in the midst of his city, in the midst of this city, Jerusalem, he says, we'll have a temple and this will be my permanent dwelling place with you. And I'll dwell among my people. And the same thing took place there. There was a holy of holies in the temple and atoning sacrifices were made and priests would represent the people and, 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 and all of that. And so that would be God's dwelling place among his people, this city really of Jerusalem. Now, you know what happened? You know, the Israelites sinned. In fact, so much so that they split at one point in time into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And you remember that the sin of the northern kingdom was so great that in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and wiped them out. And you remember that the southern kingdom was not too far behind. So ultimately, by 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and captured them. Now, the Babylonians had a very interesting way of dealing with the people they conquered. And they said, how can we really destroy this people? without losing their labor. And the way they did it was this. They enculturated the people, that is to say, they exiled them, that is to say, they moved them out of Jerusalem into Babylon, and they said, over a generation, they'll simply marry our children, and they'll work with us, and we'll educate them, and even change their names, as with Daniel and others. And he says, so, so they'll, they'll become part of our culture, and within a generation, generation and a half, They'll be destroyed because they'll be us. And so that's what happened. And if you're reading through the Bible at this point in time, you're starting to think, how is this promise to Abraham ever going to be fulfilled? I mean, really, now that people are going to be enculturated in Babylon, we're going to lose uh, the, the distinction of being a child of Abraham. How is this going to take place? Well, the prophet Jeremiah comes and says, don't worry, it's only going to last 70 years. And you go, well, fine. But how are we going to get out of this mess? Well, here's what's amazing. 150 years before the 70 years were over, the prophet Isaiah told them how they were going to be released. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah speaks of a man who hadn't yet been born. He would be a pagan king and God would use him to deliver his people. Verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. That's a fascinating word to use of Cyrus His anointed. Messiah in that sense deliverer whose right hand I have grasped to subdue, subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed I will go before you and level the exalted places I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and I will cut through the bars of iron and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I the Lord the God of Israel who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness and make well-being and create calamity. 
I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord's going to raise up this man Cyrus. Now, this is a fascinating thing because Isaiah's making a prophecy. There's a sense in which he's calling a shot. <laughs> and if this doesn't happen in history, then he'll be for naught and certainly forgotten. But if you turn to the book of Ezra, the one right before Nehemiah, contemporaries generally, two books should be read together, we won't, but they could be read together. In Ezra in chapter 1, we read this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of God by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. See, what happened is that at the end of the 70-year period, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered the Babylonians. Now, the, 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 the Persians had a very different view of what to do with the people they captured. Their view was not to enculturate the people, or even kill them, their view was to send them back and have them all rebuild their houses of worship. The reason is that that, that Cyrus and the Assyrians thought, well, there's all those gods out there, and so if we can have people worshiping those gods, they'll pray for us, and maybe one of them really is God. And if one of them really is God, we're good. So he was just covering his bases. I mean, that's, that was just their philosophy. That was, that was their strategy. And so he says, sure, go back. Rebuild the temple. I'll pay for it. Just remember me. And so they went back. I mean, who would have thought of that? Who would have thought that could ever happen? And so there they go back and they begin to rebuild the temple. So in 539 B.C., uh, uh, Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. In 538 B.C., a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, you can always remember him because Zerubbabel went back to Jerusalem, which was filled with rubble. How about that? And you wonder how I remember these things. And uh, rebuilt the city. But there was some trouble uh, the neighbors didn't like the fact that the Israelites were back. And so uh, the building got slowed. But then it picked back up again by the grace of God. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, came and said, come on, let's get going. And they found some good letters and, and found out that this had really been decreed. And so they went back and rebuilt by 516-ish. The temple and the walls were rebuilt and 458, the priest Ezra went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the worship in Israel. And now it's 445 BC, and Nehemiah gets this word. And he gets this word that while the walls had been up, someone had come and destroyed them. In chapter 2, he says, burn them down. And so now he says that the people in, in Jerusalem were in trouble and great shame or great disgrace. The sense is that they were in trouble because the walls were down and so enemies could get in, but they were disgraced as well because they were the people of God. And they were to live in such a way that showed God to be great and now to be vulnerable like this meant that they were ashamed and God was disgraced. 
So Nehemiah hears that and he, 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 he mourns and he fasts and he prays for months. Because his heart is broken over Jerusalem, over the people of God, over the glory and the honor and the name of God. All right, we caught up. Now, what's that mean? How, we, how should we approach the book that's going to tell us then about these walls being rebuilt? Two things to begin today. First this. First of all, we see that there's a sense in which this had to happen for God's promises to Abraham to be fulfilled. God had promised Abraham, one will come from your seed, will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And so we have to have Israelites. We have to have children, real children of Abraham, out of which this one will come to bless all the families of the earth. When you're reading through the Old Testament, always have in your mind that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham and thus he'll keep this people. Because you see, what's going to happen when we finish up Nehemiah and thereabouts? God will be silent for 400 years. And that silence will only be broken when an angel comes to a young virgin named Mary. Second thing. That what we're seeing in the book of Nehemiah is really a foreshadowing of what really is to come. We're seeing a foreshadowing about what's to come. Nehemiah's primary job, of course, was to rebuild the walls around the city. But of course, when we think about the city and what city it was, it was the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem has great importance in this history of redemption. In the days of, 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 of Nehemiah, Jerusalem was to be the very dwelling place of God among his people. The the dwelling place of God was among the Israelites in that covenant, in that time period. And he was to dwell there among his people in Jerusalem. But, But we know there's more to Jerusalem than just that moment and just that time. In fact, there's a great spiritual uh, Jerusalem, and the, the, the prophet Isaiah, in fact, speaks of it as well in, in Isaiah chapter 26 and uh, verse 1. He writes, in that day, that is in the day of complete restoration, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Now, he doesn't say Jerusalem, but that would be the strong city. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And we go, whoa. Now the walls around the strong city are called salvation. What does he mean by that? He means that what's going to protect everybody inside is the salvation of God. They'll be saved from the real enemies, sin and death, by the salvation of God. In fact, as we come, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament speaks of this, this great Jerusalem. In, in Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 22. Other of Hebrews writes, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly, that is the church, ecclesia, the church, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those 
who are born again, those who believe, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, there's this heavenly Jerusalem that is the church, that is the gathering of all those who belong to Jesus. And we see it even more clearly in the revelation uh, to John in Revelation 21, verse 1. You know this passage. That I saw a new, Jer- a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first uh, earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be them with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed, have passed away. And so we see is that what Nehemiah was doing in his day was building this great gathering of God's people, the church there. And we see that in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the gathering of all believers, old covenant, new covenant, all believers, all saved by the blood of Christ, you see. And a day will come when it will so be so real that it will become the new heavens and the new earth and will dwell in the very presence of God forever. You see, what Nehemiah is, is a foreshadowing even of the coming of Jesus. That he, Jesus, is in essence the ultimate Nehemiah, if you will. He's the ultimate one. He is indeed the Savior. Now, if you think about Nehemiah, there he was in the palace of the king. And he got this news about what was going on in Jerusalem. It broke his heart. And he, though the cupbearer of the king, which was a significant role that he was playing there, still he was a slave. And still he was, he was, he was under the authority of, of the king. And, and so uh, there he was, but yet God so favored him that he was able to leave the palace in this humbled state and do the work to which he was called to do in the midst of this great opposition. This morning at first service, I was sitting with my dad, and I, uh, I said, Dad, do you remember an old hymn uh, called Out of the Ivory Palaces? He says, well, you've got to be 100 years old to remember that. I said, Dad, at 96, I suppose that's true. <laughs> and it was his favorite hymn, always, he told us growing up as kids. In fact, my sister Patty and I sang a duet of that uh, when we were in junior choir. In nice little white robes. I never understood it, really, until I began to think about Nehemiah. And in the chorus of it, uh, I won't sing it, but you can Google it and you can get George Beverly Shea singing this song from 1976 when he was 103. But, uh, but uh, out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love could make our Savior go. 
You see, the Lord Jesus left ivory palaces. And he left the ivory palaces and humbled himself and became a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And went to his death, even death, even death on a cross. So what we'll see as we work our way through this book of Nehemiah, I trust, is that actually we'll see Jesus and we'll see how it is that he's building the church. I read earlier this morning this passage from Matthew uh, 16. You you remember, again, it's a common one where Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them, ultimately directed at Peter, the question. It's the question. Of all the questions anyone can be asked, this is the question. And the question was, who do you say that I am? That determines everything. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. And then you remember the next line. Jesus said, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And of course, there's a great deal of discussion about who Peter is and all of this and what that, that really means. But we do know this, that Jesus was using a metaphor like he used others, like fishers of men. But the metaphor for the church is that it's to be built and that there's a foundation. And the foundation is Jesus, as we sang, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he is the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And it's the Lord Jesus who will build the church. And we say, well, how will he build it? And we know that he'll build it by his word and spirit. In fact, we see that in Acts in chapter 20. In this scene, uh, the apostle Paul is meeting with a group of elders who are from Ephesus. And they've met him in this little, in this community called Miletus. And it's Paul thinks it's the last time he'll ever see them. And so he gives them instructions. As elders, verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul goes out, you see, and he understands that the church will be built by the word of God. Verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he realizes that it must be through the word and the spirit. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, that is those who will bring in false teaching, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So it's through the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's the same word that Jesus used to say, I'll build my church to build you up. And give you the inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. So the church we build up by his word and spirit. And the question is, how will Jesus accomplish that? Through whom will he do it? Well, the passage from Ephesians that I read earlier as well. In Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, and he, that is Jesus, 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. How will the church be built? It will be built by you and me declaring God's word in the power of his spirit. See, that's what Nehemiah knew. And so he went back to Jerusalem, not simply to build walls, but to assure a place where God could be with his people. And Jesus came not to build buildings, but to build a people who would dwell with his father and himself in the spirit. And all this would take place, of course, by his word and spirit. Nehemiah knew that, so he knew the word of God, and so he went in the power of the spirit and prayer, and miraculous things happened as the church was built up. And I began to think the other day, what is it about him? What is it about him that caused him to do this, to risk all of this? He risked his life to go and do this. What, what was it? And then I began to think, what was it about the Lord Jesus that brought him? And then I remembered, in fact, this happened in the shower this morning, so I'm glad you weren't with me, but in the shower this morning, I would have read it earlier, but I didn't know about it until the shower this morning. I began to think of a phrase that just popped into my head somewhere between the soap and the shampoo. And uh, it, bu- it bounced into my head. And I go, I read that every Advent. I read that every Advent. That's it. Isaiah in chapter 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And here is the sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It was his zealousness for his father's glory. It was his zealousness for his father's name. It was his zealousness for the well-being of those who would be the people of God. And he came. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, 19th century, wrote a number of things. One of his books is entitled Practical Religion. It's quite good. After you finish Hot Tub Religion, you can go on to this one. He writes this. A zealous man in religion is primarily a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he's earnest or hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. The fact is, He sees only one thing. He cares for only one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. 
And that one thing is to please God wherever, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and advance his glory. And you see, that was Jesus. If you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you come on to an expression. I mean, throughout this first eight or nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is telling his disciples he has to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed and all of that. But there is one expression that comes in chapter 9, verse 51. And that expression is this. That Jesus set his face, parenthetically, like flint, like stone. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was only one thing upon his mind. And that one thing was to give himself, to glorify his father, to honor his father's name, and to save his people. If we're going to be used by Jesus to build his church, we must be, I must be, zealous. I must be a man of one thing. We must be a people of one thing. A people whose one thing is to please God and honor his name. Nehemiah was a man of one thing. And Jesus was the ultimate man of one thing. We must be a people of one thing. So as we read through the book of Nehemiah together, what I hope we find is how it is to be people of one thing. How it is that we're to be a people who used by Jesus to build his church. And most especially, I hope, that we see Jesus. Stay with us. Let's pray. Father, Pray for me, for us, that you would indeed cause us to be a people of one thing, to please you and to glorify your name. Father, it seems there's so much that comes into our lives that draw us and pull us away from this one thing. We, we think we should satisfy the rules of our culture. We, we think that we should be prosperous to impress them. We, we think that our children must be a certain way to give in to what the culture says they should be. But please cause us to be people, moms and dads, church people, Christians, the one thing. We would teach our children the one thing that we would be about the one thing. That we would be about pleasing you and honoring your name. Father, we're grateful that 
You've called us to be a people, a company of people, to be a church together. And we're grateful. And so we're grateful that we get to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're grateful that uh, we get to rejoice with Monica and Phil Duncan on the birth of their little boy. We're grateful. We're thankful that we can comfort one another in grief. And we pray for Jereen Rife and her family on the death of her husband, Al. Bless them. We're grateful that we get to comfort and help those who are in particular need, need for healing. We pray for Brad Kaler, that you would continue to heal him and be with Beth as she ministers to him. And Marjorie Miller, she continues to her cancer treatment. And for David, as he faithfully ministers to her. Father, there are so many others, but yet we pray that you would use us in their lives and you would bless them by your word and spirit to build them up. Father, we do pray that we would be that church that's about that one thing so that your name would be glorified and your people blessed. Then this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please stand.